The Start On Demand. On demand. Is Canada's recycling industry broken? Global News has launched a series this week that reveals as you try to do your part and help the planet, a lot of the stuff you put in your blue bin still ends up in a landfill or ends up being set ablaze. Wrongful convictions. There are a lot of them in this country. Why do they happen? That's part of another series Global News is launching this week, so we'll get into that. Valor FC kicks off its inaugural season this week. We'll tee it up with head coach Rob Gale. And be honest, did you spend time in detention? The news there is fewer kids are getting detention as a form of punishment these days, and experts say that's a good thing. Do you agree? I'm Brett McGarry, alongside Greg Mackling and Loren McNabb. We are Mackling, McGarry and McNabb, and this is the Monday, April 29th podcast for The Start. Mackling, McGarry, and McNabb, the flood threat is far from over in eastern Canada, where residents in Quebec, Ontario, and New Brunswick are facing several more days of flooding. Yeah, it got serious in some places. On Saturday in the suburb west of Montreal, more than 5,000 residents were forced to grab what essentials they had and flee as waist-high water filled their streets after a dike broke and some lake water burst through. And then in Ottawa, sandbags continued to be filled this morning by volunteers working to protect homes along a severely bloated Ottawa River. Among those who were helping out over the weekend were the Prime Minister and his two sons. So Justin Trudeau was preparing sandbags in Constant Bay, Ontario, Saturday, when he was confronted by an unidentified man who accused of him and his people of slowing down operations in favour of what the man called a photo op. Both the Prime Minister's office, the City of Ottawa, as well as the RCMP have said traffic was not blocked and delayed. And we're going to have more on that in a moment. But first, here's some of the audio from that confrontation. You know, while you're and here, yes, while I'm you're here, here nobody sorry. can pick up. I am here while you're just... here, no one can pick I up don't know sand. That, sir. I'm sorry, well, sir. why don't you make yourself aware? Well, we are going you know, going I was with a guy sir, who was a staunch today. conservative. Sorry, sorry, and sir, he said sir, if you'd sir, actually sorry, do work, he'd change his vote and vote for you. That's sincerity. I spent half an hour. Can you listen to me, sir, now that I've listened to you? Yeah, I'll listen. Okay. I'm glad to be here with my kids. We just filled sandbags for 15 minutes, which isn't enough. Up. Sorry. All sir. your RCMP sir. and security help people sir. up from sir. getting their stuff. I can stuff. understand your frustration around security. I live frustrations with security every day of my life right now. That's something that I that unfortunately is a reality in my life. Time but I'm taken. happy to he- be here. They're about to open to these speak. dams. I'm happy to be here to speak with you, to listen to you, to speak with all to point. encourage more Canadians to come out and volunteer. More people are coming and volunteer because we're I volunteered, to it. but I was in a Thank truck you, for an hour waiting you, while you were here for your with a photo op. I have the most insincere thing well. I've ever seen. I'm sorry, sir. That's un- un- unfriendly and unneighborly today. We're here to help. Thank you. Thank you. You be neighborly. You be neighborly. Okay, so just for some context that we think it's important, Global National reporter David Aiken was also there for that. Uh, Prime Minister's visit. Now, he didn't see the confrontation, but David Aiken later tweeted out that after spending hours in Constance Bay, both Friday and Saturday, that the man at the heart of that confrontation was wrong. Here's what he tweeted. Angry volunteer offside. Sandbags were picked up during Prime Minister's visit. Both Doug and Justin Trudeau, Doug Ford and Justin Trudeau, had security details for visits to the same place. No roads were blocked. He goes on to say, I was there for hours both day, saw both visits essentially move on. There wasn't a problem. So he appreciates where that guy is angry because you have a situation you're stressed about, but that it had no impact on the overall operations. Whether or not 
we should discuss politicians just showing up at these kinds of things. And sure. that's, that's the conversation we might want to have this morning. I think that's the conversation to have. What is the value of these photo ops, as the volunteer called them? And I don't think the prime minister's office could call it anything other than that. You could call it volunteering if you like. But we know that the prime objective is to be seen doing something. And, uh, hey, I, I get it. I understand the nuance of the entire thing. But I think also sometimes it's better served if you just roll up your sleeves and just get get to work. Shovel the sand. Get in the sandbags. you got your sons there. I don't know if they're old enough to be there and help out or not. Let's give them the benefit of the doubt on that front. And I would much rather, I would much rather see someone in a political position, whether it's the prime minister, an MP, an MLA, I would rather see pictures of them just actually doing the work than posing and and standing beside those who are doing okay, the work. Okay, so then how long, like, what is your window, though, then? Cause, uh, because just go I, and do it. I know, just but I still think the person would be accused because of who they are. So unless they're there for eight hours, nine hours, ten hours, like, what's your time frame? Because say he's there for two hours. Is that still an op or is that actual him just doing the work? Versus standing and posing with the team of sandbaggers as he did. I understand, the but mili- then he mili- went on to fill some sandbags. I'm, I'm just, just asking what your time frame is, like I, to I'm, make that a good effort by a politician. Whatever amount of time you have blocked out for that, don't take seven minutes of it setting up for a picture. Just shovel the sandbags. That's the way I would approach it, as opposed to taking the team picture. That's my approach. That would be my approach. That's the way I would say. I would it. argue that they just shouldn't be. They could help from afar, meet with officials at a, you know, at the city hall and talk to them about what's going on, put out a statement saying, this is what we're going to do as a government to help you. But I don't know if me showing up with my security detail and traffic that's and all the, the rest. That's the ultimate approach. But if you feel the need to be there, at least spend every minute you can shoveling sand and filling sandbags. But we want to start this half hour with... Garbage. Yeah, last week we discussed the 100-plus shipping containers of Canadian garbage, which has been sitting in the Philippines for years. It was labeled as recyclable. In reality, it was tons and tons of garbage. That country would like to repatriate the garbage. That may be just the tip of the iceberg. It's not just the Philippines that is saying no more to importing garbage. Canada's recycling industry is having its moment of reckoning with more Going to landfill, less being accepted in the blue bin, and the cost of going green soaring. Here's a sample of the first of Global's Carolyn Jarvis three-part series on the new reality for recycling in our country. It became a drug for this country that, oh, China will take it, China will take it. For years, much of the world's recycling was sent to China. We fell into the trap of just exporting our problems. We put it on a ship, dusted our hands, and high-fived each other for being green. What they were doing was mining out the valuable materials, and they were in large part burning the low-valuable materials. And then China just finally said, no, we've had enough. At the start of last year, China shut its doors, and the global recycling industry went into a tailspin. Recycling is, of course, I think a point of pride for many Canadians. We were just talking this morning about how we all try to do our part. But because of that ban on recycling in China and because of the struggles to figure out where to put all this stuff, they're buckling under the pressure in many communities in this country. 
Tony Walker is an assistant professor with the School for Resource and Environmental Studies at Dalhousie University and joins us now for more. Good morning, Tony. Good morning. Okay, so let's start with this issue of recycling no longer being allowed in China. Who who is shipping all this over there to begin with? All municipalities? Most municipalities? Absolutely. Um, It was most of them. Um, So some municipalities had, uh, uh, you know, domestic markets for some of its uh, recycled material, but the majority was shipping it to China and other countries as well in uh, Southeast Asia. So this was sort of a a false success story to a certain extent. We've been celebrating how much uh, waste has been diverted from our landfill here in Winnipeg for years. In reality, uh, it may have been diverted from our landfill, but maybe it was just going to a landfill halfway around the world. That's right. Instead of uh, it being a global recycling industry, it was almost like a, a global shipping and pollution transfer uh, system that was set up. And certainly uh, municipalities, uh, not just in Canada, but uh, across North America, uh, lacked domestic capacity to uh, deal with this material. So the, the simple solution was to export it to China. And, and to be fair, China was uh, paying for it. So there was a market. And of course, the entire system relied upon uh, this export uh, market continuing. Why were they paying for it? I'm just curious, like, what would have been the benefit for China to take all this in? Yeah, well, China, uh, as you know, if you, uh, you know, look around, uh, you know, your cupboards at home, a lot of material was manufactured in China, uh, you know, kind of um, technical goods as well as low cost uh, uh, goods. And because of their enormous manufacturing capacity, their own plastic uh, recycling wasn't able to meet that demand uh, to make all the, these new products for the rest of the world. So they relied on importing supposedly clean, good, high-quality plastics from around the world. But uh, as of December uh, in 2017, China uh, banned all these uh, imports because it's changing the way it uh, operates its economy. So it's going towards a a more green, high-tech economy rather than uh, relying on manufacturing. And any manufacturing it still currently does, it uh, relies on its own domestic plastic recycling. So it doesn't need ours. And the stuff that that they were accepting, so then they were were going through it and taking the best stuff and then burning the rest? Yeah, that's that's right. I mean, uh, the original model was set up so that uh, you would have clean, high-quality plastics, and it would be um, uh, plastics that uh, China would uh, would want: high-density polyethylene, which is the uh, you know the hard containers, and and the low-density uh, polyethylene, which is the plastic film uh, from plastic shopping bags. And that would have been great. They would have taken that, uh, you know probably for, for a little bit longer. But a lot of the material was being shipped and it was contaminated either with food or with, with other you know, undesirable materials. Uh, at the start of the show, you mentioned the containers uh, sent to the Philippines. I mean, none of that uh, was recyclable material. It was just garbage. So, Tony, I know that a lot of the recycling programs across the country, including ours here, were expanding. Every year, it seemed they were adding things onto the list that were acceptable for recycling. And in reality, was that expanded list contaminating the amount of usable recyclables? Uh, not necessarily. I mean, if it was put into the blue bag in, in uh, a dry condition and say like a peanut butter container, as, as long as that didn't have any residual peanut butter left in there, it would have been 
sorted and then separated and then shipped to the uh, the, the appropriate market. But I think um, over time, some some people are, and municipalities are very diligent uh, with what they take, and then some residents and some municipalities were were getting careless, and a lot of the material was being put in the blue bag but it was already contaminated even before it was collected, unfortunately. Is part of the issue here just how we're consuming and what's changed in the way we consume in terms of, you know, we do more online shopping, so all sorts of goods come to us in all sorts of different packaging, perhaps more packaging than ever before. Part of that plastic might be recyclable, the rest isn't. I just chuck it all in recycling because I assume, well, it's all recyclable these days, and the system just doesn't have the capacity to deal with that. Yeah, there's a there's a complex uh, mixture of plastics that we rely on, whether you go to the store and buy your own groceries or uh, shop online. Um, you know, it's not just groceries, but we're relying on uh, these things that are incredibly uh, over-packaged. And, you know, plastic packaging was uh, originally designed for convenience. It was inexpensive, and uh, it helped improve uh, food safety and reduce food waste, which was a good thing. But I think uh, there's excessive amounts and there's uh, very complex mixtures of polymers making it incredibly difficult to recycle uh, at the back end. So uh, it would be great if there was a, um, you know, uh, a reduced amount of polymers used in the plastic packaging or, or reduce the packaging itself. So, Tony, what does Canada do here? How do we own our own recycling? And I think some of us were under the impression that a lot of these materials were being recycled here in Canada and being reused and turned into goods that we use in other fashions. Yeah, that's right. And, uh, you know, I guess we've been uh, resting on our laurels for quite some time. I mean, most lay people uh, wouldn't give it a second thought once it was in the blue bin. It was good to go. And uh, like uh, your opening remarks there on the show, we gave each other a high five for being uh, nice and green. However, the reality is uh, China's banned uh, these materials and many more. And uh, and so have uh, the list of other uh, six Southeast Asian uh, countries that were accepting it. So that puts us in a bit of a pickle. And uh, for many years, we, we have not had the capacity domestically to recycle materials. And uh, the federal government has announced um, it's, it, it's going towards a, a Canadian national plastic zero waste strategy. So in order to get there, we can't export it anymore. We're going to have to increase uh, capacity at home or even look to uh, for alternatives and, and certainly reduce the amount of plastic packaging we're relying on currently. Tony Walker is an assistant professor with the School for Resource and Environmental Studies at Dalhousie University, joining us live this morning on 680 CJOB. Tony, thank you for this. We appreciate the time. Thank you very much. Cheers. And we'll have more on the Global News series on recycling coming up at 8.07. It's a three-part series called Wasted Rethinking Recycling in Canada. I had no idea. Sorry to interrupt, Brad. I just didn't didn't know that this is how the bulk of the system worked, that we might recycle here, but then... It just ends up on a ship going to another country. Well, you see the commercials, right? Oh, this this pop bottle turned into this sleeping bag right. and turned into this park bench. Which might and, be the case, but it's it happening overseas. Well, I've had the sense that we had all these these industries happening here in our own backyard. I guess um, silly me for for believing that. Yeah, it's a rude awakening to learn that all the stuff I've been putting, been doing my part, trying to do my part by putting it into the blue bin and to learn that it's just crossed the ocean and made to maybe be set on fire in China. That's, yeah, that's kind of, it's sort of like punch to the gut. Yeah, Yeah. no kidding, man.
We start this hour with part one of a different global news series, and the question being asked, is Canada's recycling system broken? Yeah, over the past few months, Global News has been conducting an investigation into recycling in this country, and it's done dozens of interviews with companies in Canadian communities about the challenges of recycling in Canada. And with few exceptions, it appears the conclusion from industry insiders is more recycling is being sent to the landfill, and the financial toll of running recycling programs is becoming a burden for a growing number of towns and cities. Global's chief investigative correspondent, Carolyn Jarvis, has been looking into this for us and joins us now. Good morning, Carolyn. Good morning. So does this all start with China and the fact that it's banned or added to its list of plastics that are banned that we can no longer ship there? I mean, the short answer is yes, although the larger answer is no. It, it starts with us and the amount of waste that we produce as Canadians and as global citizens. Uh, I mean, the amount of plastic packaging, paper packaging that we are producing is at an all-time high. But when China, which was the dumping ground for all of that waste, said, "Uh uh-huh, we don't want this anymore, in January 2018, the world scrambled to find a new dumping ground. And other Asian countries opened up their doors, Malaysia, Thailand, Taiwan, Vietnam. And over the last number of months, what we've seen there is they've also started shuttering the doors, saying, we can't handle this either. Figure out your own problem here. Solve the conundrum of what you do with your own trash. And we haven't solved that problem. In the States, some cities are literally canceling their recycling programs. And in Canada, things are in dire straits, depending on where you look. We are even seeing communities that are modifying midstream which materials they'll accept into recycling. Absolutely. We profile a couple of those in part one that airs tonight on Global National. You know, St. Albert and Strathcona, which lie on the outskirts of Edmonton, Uh, They've had to add a list of items that they will no longer accept. And that's a trend I've seen right across the board in Canada. Some of the bigger cities have been able to say, no, 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 we'll still accept the same things. But the reality is, is the people who are still accepting what they used to are just sending it more of them, more of that material to trash. And so experts in the industry industry say to me, we can fool ourselves into doing what's called wish cycling, just wishing away these products and thinking that we're being great global citizens. But the truth is, is that there's nobody buying this stuff at the end of the day. Recycling is about a business. It's about a commodity. You Put a piece of plastic in your recycling bin. Somebody needs to buy that plastic to make new products out of it. And nobody's buying it right now. We've got calls into the city of Winnipeg to try to confirm just exactly what our industry looks like in terms of the amount of plastics we may, we may or may not be shipping out of country, Carolyn. And, and adding to that, are we adapting our own list so that we can accommodate some of these concerns? But I think, I don't think I'm alone when I say I didn't know that this amount of plastic was just being pushed out of countries. Do you find that most people are surprised when they hear some of these numbers? Well, people, the thing is, people don't think about it. You know, you put things in your blue bin and you, and you haul it to the edge of your curb. And that's kind of where the thought process ends for most Canadians. I don't think people think beyond, I've done well for my community and there you go. It's not in, it's not in the black bin, it's in the blue bin. Yeehaw. The problem is, is what's happening with it after it goes to a sorting facility and a recycling facility and after a, a broker gets involved and sells it overseas. It's a multi-layered process. And the flaw is, is that we haven't developed a system where that material is actually recycled in what's called a circular economy here in Canada. So that not only is it repurposed into say, a small little bead so you can make new plastics out of it. But there is a demand for that material. We don't require in Canada, in any part of the country, 
that our packaging contains a certain percentage of recycled content, which is something we're going to talk about a little bit later in the week. Something as simple as a move like that, or seemingly simple, I should say, could change this industry overnight. California's done it. They've said, if you want to use packaging in our state, you have to, you have to use a certain percentage of recycled content. And overnight, people who recycle plastics had a place to sell it. Carolyn, this whole idea of recycling, and is it the circular recycling economy? economy? Yeah. I, I think, you know, we've seen the, the um, I call it the plastic wood that we, we put on our, our decks now, if, you, if you're fortunate enough to uh, be able to uh, afford it. Uh, the benches, I know at my kids' school, they, they won a contest where they recycled a bunch of, well, they brought in a bunch of grocery uh, shopping bags into the school, and they brought in the most in the city, and so they won this bench. I was under the impression that they built these benches in Canada. Are those constructed and, and created offshore as well? These benches in, in Winnipeg, is that what you're talking about? Yeah, well, these different, you know, you've seen the plastic wood. Like, like we're not making them here after all? I, the, the short answer to that is I have no idea where the benches in your kid's school in Winnipeg were created. I mean, I would love to think that everything's, you know, made domestically with an eco mindset, but I, I would have no idea. I, we source things globally because we work in a competitive ecosystem. Um, what I do know is that when we're talking about plastic bags, as you alluded to a second ago, there are very few places in the country that will accept plastic bags as recycling, which is why so many municipalities across the country have said, we will no longer take your plastic bags anymore. And a couple of places in the country have put in place bans. I mean, what people in the industry say needs to happen to shift this paradigm is there for there to be bold leadership from people in positions of government and for consumers to vote with their pocketbooks. Carolyn Jarvis, Global's chief investigative correspondent, has been looking into Canada's recycling system joins us live this morning. Thank you so much, Carolyn. We appreciate the time. Thanks for having me. And again, the headline at globalnews.ca, cjob.com, is Canada's recycling industry broken. Part one of a three-part series more on Global National tonight. What was that ruckus? Uh, What ruckus? I was just in my office and I heard a ruckus. Could you describe the ruckus, sir? Watch your tongue, young man. Watch it. Mackling McGarry McNabb. The headline at cjob.com, fewer kids are getting detention, and experts say that's a good thing. If you want to read more on that, we've linked it to our 680CJOB Instagram. Jeff Braun is here. Kelly Moore back from Florida. Jeff Fortier. And detention, that was a clip from The Breakfast Club, of course. Classic John Hughes film from 1985. Have, who's here? Greg, you must have gone into detention. You're a wise guy. Oh, come on. <laughs> <laughs> he actually, had his own room. <laughs> actually, actually, just once. It was in grade nine. I had, uh, well, let's put it this way. I wasn't very good at being on time. And so my vice principal decided that I owed the school about an hour and a half for all the seven and eight minute lates. And so I had to clean all the gum from the tops of the locker all the way on the third floor at Gross. Isaac Brock School on a Friday, which was a day off for everyone else, an in-service day, and I got a putty knife and a garbage bag and a little bit of a stool and was told, get to it, Mackling, oh, and uh, yeah, a couple hours later, I was all done. Uh, needless to say, I was not late uh, after that. Who, Jeff Braun, you ever get detention? Oh, yeah. A couple of times in junior high in uh, French class, and he'd make you stay late after after school and conjugate verbs for an hour or something like that. Oh, that's oh, always thrrilling. Oh, okay. Did you have the Becherel? I don't know. That's that, that green uh, French uh, 
verb conjugation Bible. Yeah. Oh, yeah. No, <laughs> we didn't have anything That's like right. that. Yeah. But it was all right because uh, it it's a small town thing, and my parents, uh, so long as you're home in time for supper. Yeah. So if I was at school till 4.30, they never found out about it or anything. So I never got in real trouble. Really? Oh. Yeah. Because I grew up in a small town, and my parents knew before oh, really? it had even <laughs> punishment had been handed out. You get the phone call. And, and it was like, never just me. It was usually like half the class all at once yeah. sort of thing. So. Kelly Moore? I honestly don't remember. It just there was one part of my elementary school uh, career, I'll call it, where we lived 28 miles outside of town. And so he had to walk the whole way to school. <laughs> no, 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 no. But my dad or the next door neighbor, they would take turns driving. So if you were held late for detention, mm. screwed up the whole operation. Was, yeah, there was you know five or six other kids that were affected by that. So I I don't remember. Ever, I must have been stuck in a corner at some point. I, I don't ever remember getting a putty knife and uh, a garbage bag, but I, I must have messed up at some point and been told to go to the back of the class. And you know, now it's called a timeout. Yeah. You know, before it was go stand in the corner. Yeah, I had that a few times too. McNabb. Yeah, I think so, but I can't. Like nothing is dying out for me. But there's no way I made it through junior high for sure with what I will call a slight attitude problem. <laughs> Without, what would the teachers call it? I think they would have said she's feisty. I don't know. I for sure, like I got banned from a school ski trip once um, oh for my, my attitude. Yeah, and then that was pretty much the line for me. What brought on the attitude? Don't just skip I over the I story. I can't remember. Oh. I, I, I don't know. I, all of a sudden it was like, like I was on a list with five people who weren't allowed to go and because, because the gym teacher had sort of just had it with me. And I don't know. <laughs> And I've seen her since, and she's a great woman in town, and we've talked and we laugh about it. And I don't know what I did, but I did something, and that was enough for me. It did work for me. Like, I, I was embarrassed that I had made this list of other these other kids that were on it. I was like, him, him, me? Like, how did I get in the same classification as them? And then I was like, I need to. Clearly, I've got a situation. <laughs> no, I, I need to know fix. something. Yes. The school ski trip, was that all the way to no, Ski no, Valley no, no. It was just in to Ski Valley. It wasn't to BC or anything. Oh, okay. I, I can't remember, but it was the school ski day. Right. And I got told so you're not welcome. So it was a four-minute bus ride from, So what did you wind up doing because you couldn't go on the ski trip? Then? Oh, well, in my house, if we got, if anything like that happened or if you had disciplinary things at school, you had an equal part action at home. So I can't remember what it was, but say, for example, in my home, if you did something at school and they gave you two days for whatever you did, yeah, you, no, you but I'm talking about six the, days. What did oh. you do at school? Because if you weren't going on the ski trip, then I would have I think had... we just sat there. I don't remember, but I still remember the shame I felt to this day. So shame. it worked. To me, it worked. Shame. Oh, yeah, of course. <laughs> <laughs> Jeff oh, has a whole list. <laughs> I, I still has to go back after work today and spend more time at this school. Oh, yeah, you know, I've horsed around during assemblies. I've horsed around on... Uh, out of school trips, um, not doing my homework, laughing too much in class. I've had it all. Good for you. <laughs> yeah, he's just owning it. Resume, genuine, <laughs> genuine brag sheet. So here's the question then. They talk about it being down, that they're not giving as much detention because they don't think it works. They're saying that that kind of punishment isn't effective, correct, Greg? They're having a conversation. They're talking to kids now. They're talking to kids or having, you know, these lengthy discussions about why you shouldn't do what you're supposed to do. Uh, It's not supposed to be a negative thing. It's a positive way to deal with kids that are struggling with any sort of challenge. And I get that. Mm -hmm. I understand that. My my kids have even said to me, do you really think taking the iPad away is going to (laughs) work? Yeah, I do think it's going to work and it better work. Otherwise, I'm just going to keep doing it. It feels good. It does feel good. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know if it works. Oh, come on, Dad. 
Hand it over. <laughs> You're not going to believe this, Mackling, but there's a piece of gum stuck underneath you. <laughs> Come on. Really? Come on. I'll get to that during the news break. I bet you it was Tom Milroy. He leaves his gum all over the office. We know you were a goody-goody in school, so you, you never got detention, right? Oh, I... I, 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 I... Well, I think this is the most perfect name of any sports franchise in any city. I'm a West End boy. Rob Gale, the head coach of Valor FC, joins us now. And Rob, that speech you gave at the memorial at Sargent and Valor Road really struck home and hit home for a lot of folks. So, uh, first of all, great to see you this morning. Congratulations on the job and on uh, just two days away from your initial game out in Victoria. This is a pretty busy time for you. Yeah, very exciting, but uh, thank you for having us and for the kind words about uh, Valor Road and the memorial there. And uh, it's a great name, as you say, for us. We're the team with no history to build on that and everything that's emotive about the story and and something that's unique to Winnipeg and Manitoba. So it's something we can all get behind. We we talk about about the Blue Bombers and an understanding of the history and the role that they play in our community. And then, of course, uh, the Winnipeg Jets, the players get a real quick understanding of of how different this city is from others. Was that your goal there, was to to build that foundation to create something, as you say, for a a team without a history to build some sort of foundation as, as to what this is all? about yeah very much so you know when you start something new a business or or certainly a sports franchise you you want to create an identity as quickly as possible on and off the field and we've said many times we want to be a team for manitobans by manitobans and we've got a third of our playing squad that is actually from manitoba which is fantastic 95 percent of the staff live and work and we've had our kids here and we're involved in the community all the time so for that story it really resonates for all of us and gives us a great platform to build on and all the values that we're looking for the courage the honor the pride that you can take into sport uh, obviously we can we can take that from the highest level there also really important to bring in on your first week because I can only imagine what you know fans don't know what to expect come this week in terms of how the team might do how the other teams will do who will win who will lose where are you in terms of how do you describe your emotions right now is it nerves is it excitement is it uh, for me you know, to throw uh, up yeah. like I don't know <laughs> for me for me I'm not nervous it's a you know it's a player's game and as the coach you, you prepare them as best you can what we don't know is what the level of Canadian Premier League is going to be uh, luckily in my previous role as national teams manager with the Olympic squad under 20s under 17s I know there's a lot of talent in Canada but that was why there was a need for a professional league we didn't have the number of franchises that other uh, countries do the US and Mexico have vibrant leagues so it's very important for us to establish this tier one FIFA league which it is so we're not a farm team we're not a junior team we're a tier one professional league and we brought players in from all over the world because we're allowed seven internationals so I think a lot of people are going to be surprised by the level when they were seeing the first two games over the weekend. Soccer has long been the most popular sport around the globe, but in North America, it was a little slow to take off. So now that is, as you mentioned, it's big in the States, Mexico, and now finally here in Canada. Uh, how does that feel as somebody who's been involved in the game for so long? Yeah, long overdue. And I've been a big proponent of promoting Canadian talent, obviously, with the national teams. Uh, but what you'll see now is local heroes. The, the attachments, you can go and watch professional games. Lorraine and I were just talking about it off air, saying that without that previously, 
it's hard for players to establish, you know, young players to have their role models. They're more likely to be the Shifley's or the Andrew Harris's or, or other sports. Now they'll have players that they will see out in the community, coaching in their clubs, developing in the same leagues and clubs that they have who have a professional pathway to go on and make this their living. How key is that? Because we were saying, you know, it's all about dreams, and especially for little kids. It doesn't mean they're all going to grow up and be the next Shifley in hockey or I don't the superstar in soccer. I'm, I'm lost. I was going to say Renald Rodino. Ronaldo, yeah, <laughs> not <you>. bad. <laughs> Somewhere Michelle Lissell is banging her head against the door. But anyway, I, I think that that's key because if they don't have that name to look up to, it's hard to say I could do this in my life. It is very much so, you know, and I, I grew up in England, so I was lucky. We have 92 professional clubs on your doorstep from a very young age. I knew I wanted to be I involved. I could have said Beckham. I mean, come <laughs> Beckham on, Beckham would have been brilliant, that right? Everybody's favourite. But uh, <laughs> he's got better hair than he has soccer these days. But, uh, <laughs> yeah, it's so important to have those those young local heroes, people that you can aspire to be and sort of dangle that carrot for the young players. And now we have that. It is the only coast-to-coast league we are, Victoria right across to Halifax. So it's going to be amazing and it's going to continue to grow. There's 22 other franchises looking to get into this league right now. So it's just going to get bigger and better. Well, you know, Winnipeg has such a history of being a leader in terms of attendance, independent basketball, the Winnipeg Thunder, the Winnipeg Cyclone uh, traditionally did very well attendance wide in spite of the struggles of the league itself. And of course, the Winnipeg Gold Eyes continually in the top two or three of all independent baseball in all of North America. So I don't think fan support is going to be a big deal here. I I think it's going to come. The Winnipeg Fury did a great job of drawing fans over the years. I, I would say that of all the things you need to worry about, it, it it might be lower down on the top 10, Rob. I think you're right. And, you know, with the, the Bombers ownership that we do have and the Valor Ball, we have a great infrastructure and a great start. But the one thing I know, having been here 15 years, is Manitoba loves its sports teams. They rally around their own. It's fantastic. They're going to support their own because we are a third Manitobans. And I think we're uh, very close to the 10,000 mark already for the home opener. That's only going to continue to grow. And hopefully the weather's nice so we can get a few walkouts too. But the one thing we do want to make it uh, is a unique sporting experience. So it will be different to the Bombers. It will be different to the Gold Eyes and, and the Jets because it's 90 minutes continuous action. So there's going to be a band, there's going to be chants, there's going to be songs, the supporters groups are popping up organically. And I think for the hardcore fanatic that are used to watching the European leagues and those kind of things, this will actually feel somewhat real and realistic to the traditional game overseas. Well, if you've only ever watched soccer or football on TV, you, you, you hear that quiet sometimes, right? But when you go to the games live in England or in Toronto that had TFC when they came, the fans can be insane. So what traditions do you hope fans here maybe adopt from England or other that you'd love to see really take on? You mentioned the chance is one, like the chants get really unique. The singing is incredible. The singing is incredible. That, that is absolutely it. You know, those unique chants. One of the things when I first went to the Jets, I'm like, we've only got one cheer. <laughs> other than a, a bit of a goalie banter every now and then, you know, you look nervous. I remember at the first game of the playoffs this year but we want more than go Valor go you know we want it to be authentic and most times in England they have songs for every player and the fans can get really creative and it's a chance for them to stand wave some flags or some scarves and bounce up and down for 90 minutes you know 
that'll grow organically and it'll become what it becomes. I don't think we want to force anything on the fans and for them to find their identity and attachment to this team and then we'll take it from there, but it's going to be a, a lot of fun. What's with the scarves? That's a, that's a big soccer thing. Yeah, it's just tribal identity, really. It's like your white out or anything else. Uh, the fans like to hold up their scarves and usually there's an anthem coming out. So it's it's just uh, showing your identity and creating this wall of colour mm. uh, that obviously looks intimidating to the opposition and that your own team can identify with. Mackling McGarry McNabb, thank you very much for joining us this morning on The Start. And Greg, finding a job can be a challenge no matter the circumstance. Yeah, for some in our community, the obstacles can be a little taller and a little wider than they are for others. That's where SCE LifeWorks steps in. Their mandate is to support people with intellectual disabilities to work and participate in the community. With that mission statement in mind, they will be holding a reverse Job fair this Thursday, May the 2nd, 9 a.m. till 11. SCE LifeWorks president and CEO is Oli Backstrom, and he joins us in studio to tell us about his organization and to start what is a reverse job fair. Great to see you, Oli. Well, thanks so much for having me on, Greg. And, um, well, reverse job fair. You know, I think businesses, are if they are hiring and they're going, uh, if they're at a career fair, they're used to setting up their display and having a couple staff there. They probably have to go the night before and set up. Uh, and then they have to person that table throughout the rest of the day. And so we thought, you know, we're going to uh, give the businesses a break. And so instead of the businesses setting up a table and display, the job seekers set up a table and display. And the businesses can come and go as they please in a way that fits them anytime between 7 and uh, 11 a.m. on Thursday and they can meet uh, 20 uh, young people who are just graduating from our Project Search uh, high school transition program and are, are motivated and talented employees looking for a great business to connect with. Why do it that way? What, what spoke to you as a need about what might not have been working for these individuals when it came to just trying to access employment and, and then say, you know what, why don't you sell yourselves as opposed to the other way around? Oh, we do that too. <laughs> and we do that throughout the year. But it was a model that uh, Project Search uh, is a movement that's well-developed in the States. We're the first two sites in Canada. But we learned from our American partners where they've started doing this reverse job fair. In some cases, to great effect. Uh, because um, my, um, you know, I think my gut reaction would have been that, you know, we have to go where the businesses already are, you know, to invite businesses may not always work. But given this context, I th- what we've heard from other reverse job fairs in the U.S. is that it's, it's just really easy for businesses to engage with. Um, so, so we thought we'd give it a try. This is our third year. And so... Um, there have been employment opportunities that have resulted as uh, out of this, so we're looking forward to another year. But we're, of course, we do the song and dance every year to mm-hmm. get the good word out. So thank you for uh, making sure that the the public is aware of this. Well, and it, just as it's a challenge for people to find work, I would imagine it's just as much of a challenge for for employers to find people. So you're kind of taking all that legwork away for them and just say, here's a whole bunch of qualified people, come say hi. Yeah, exactly. You know, from a Job seekers' perspective in Manitoba, uh, Manitobans with intellectual disabilities, uh, only 5% are employed, earning at least minimum wage, and working at least 20 hours per week. So that's a huge 
uh, employment gap we were trying to meet. And I think from a business perspective, there are businesses that are interested in diversifying their workforce, but they just, when the rubber hits the road, they don't know how. Mm -hmm. How do I find that person who's going to be a good fit for the tasks we need completed and for our work culture? And so part of what we're doing with this reverse job fair is if a business comes in, we'll find out what sector they're from. And we've already, we'll basically uh, escort them to the students who are a good fit, already predetermined uh, for whatever industry that business may be involved in, whether it's uh, retail, hospitality, food services, warehouse work. How, how key do you think that is for the businesses to, when you speak of diversification, to, to look at all segments of the population and say, you know, you might have stereotypes what you think this person can or cannot do and sort of to remove that so that they have that workforce that complements everybody in society? I think it's totally key. And I think, you know, um, occasionally we'll give an award to an employer who gets it, uh, who has been a great uh employer of someone we happen to support who was a job seeker looking for work. And almost always the employers who kind of quote unquote get it, when they get the award, they'll they'll say, why am I getting an award? I hired a qualified individual who does a great job. You know, before I did this, I might have had a preconceived notion about what a person with a developmental disability is capable of. But now I hired this person and they're killing it. They're improving my work culture. Uh, why are you giving me an award? What it, I'm curious in terms of what it might remove as a barrier for the person applying for the job too. If, if some of your people you know, have an intellectual disability or they're struggling in that sense or, or working to live in that sense, if they go apply for the job, it might be harder for them to walk in and have to explain their situation. And then in this case, in a reverse job fair, that employer walks in knowing this is what I'm dealing with and the understanding is already better. Does it help remove any of those barriers? That may, you know, uh, you know. I think the reverse job fair is going to attract a certain kind of business that's already maybe their head uh, mindset is, uh, you know, I am interested in diversifying my workforce. I have had issues with turnover with my, you know, I, I, I need some employees who can stick, and I need to broaden my thinking. And I've never really considered hiring a person who happens to have a developmental disability. Uh, you know, that being said, uh, this won't be the only thing we're doing. You know, we will be working with these individuals. They'll be graduating out of Project Search uh, in June. And Project Search is, it's a, it replaces what would have been the last year of high school for these individuals. So they are fully embedded within uh, one site's at Manitoba Hydro Government of Manitoba, and the other site is at HSC Winnipeg. And they're fully embedded with a team of teachers and skills trainers rotating through internships or work experiences getting their work legs, building skills. But we will then continue working with them uh, within our adult support employment services. So they'll, we'll still be reaching out to businesses and supporting the the people we support to reach out to businesses as, as any other typical job seeker would do. Sounds like a great opportunity all around. How can people get involved in the 30 seconds we have left here, Oli? You can check, uh, go to lifeworks.md.ca, our front page. We'll have a link to our poster for the reverse job for with all the details. May 2nd, 9 to 11 a.m., Homewood Suites on Hilton. It's on 1295 Ellis Avenue, close to El- uh, Empress. And uh, we like RSVPs, but we like drop-ins too. So we'd love to see uh, you as businesses and employers come in.
SCE LifeWorks president and CEO Oli Backstrom joining us live on the start. Oli, thanks for the visit. We appreciate it. Thanks so much for having me in. This is part one of five of a different kind of series, Loren. Well, I think we were we were just talking about all the names you can think of. If I say David Milgard, Thomas Sofano, James Driscoll, and and those are all prairie folk, you immediately think about the wrongfully convicted and the men and women who were sent to prison for months, years, even decades for crimes they didn't commit. But why do they happen? Why do the wrongfully convicted cases happen and what can we do to prevent them? Those are just some of the questions being asked in this series on wrongful convictions. Nikki Reitmeyer is one of the reporters behind the stories and joins us now. Good morning, Nikki. Good morning, you guys. A pleasure to talk to you again. Well, what led to this? What what was the impetus to get this conversation going? Well, I think it's something that is fascinating no matter what time in which you explore it, because, I mean, here you have stories of of innocent people, people like you and I who are just going about their daily lives. Something terrible happens in their daily lives. Perhaps a loved one goes missing, uh, a child dies, but instead of being able to mourn those people that they love, they're accused of killing those people and they end up going to jail for it. I, that's so, it's so shocking and it seems so horrendous that it could happen to anyone. And it has so many times in Canadian history, as you mentioned, speaking of, you know, David Milgard and, and other cases in particular that we examined, including Robert Baltovich, who was a man who was sent to prison for murdering his girlfriend, a crime that he didn't commit. And Maria Shepard, a woman who was sent to prison for manslaughter for killing her three three-and-a-half-year-old stepdaughter, again, a crime that she didn't commit. We're familiar with a lot of these cases. Do we know why it happens? Is it a matter of pressure on on police agencies to, to put someone into custody? What, what are we learning, Nikki? Yeah, that's one of the reasons, for sure. There's a whole number of different reasons. Uh, a lot of those reasons interesting and psychological. I mean, there's faulty eyewitness testimony, police tunnel vision when, you know, the police get so focused on just wanting to throw someone in jail. In Robert Baltovich's case, who I just mentioned, you know, they thought it had to have been the boyfriend. So they zeroed in on him, even though he wasn't the guy that did it. You could have jailhouse informants that are looking for a boost in their own position in life, and they end up lying to the police about, you know, something that they say that they know when they don't really know that information at all. You could have fabricated evidence altogether, or you can have false confessions when someone confesses to a crime that they didn't commit because of the conditions in which they're being questioned. Now, Elizabeth Loftus is a world-class psychologist and researcher. She's done a lot of work on memory and how faulty our memories can be, which, you know, as humans, we don't want to admit that our memories can be faulty, especially, you know, when you're fighting with your spouse. You'd love to think that you have the best memory. And that's simply just not the case. We asked her which story for her of wrongful conviction stands out in her mind. And she said that it's the 1980 story actually of an American man named Steve Titus because it highlights the tragedy and the lasting effects of wrongful conviction. So Steve Titus, I mean, keep in mind, this guy was innocent all along. However, he had a similar car to a woman though that was seen sorry, by a woman who was raped, and he had a beard just like the rapist had. So what happened to him? Okay, well, listen to this clip to find out. Suddenly he finds himself uh, being accused of, of rape. Uh, he proclaimed his innocence, but the rape victim 
became more and more confident that it was Steve Titus who had raped her, and he was eventually uh, convicted. But it turned out, with the help of a journalist, a newspaper journalist, it was discovered he was not the rapist. The real rapist was found, uh, and Steve Titus was actually innocent. But he had, by that time, lost his job and lost his fiance, and and his whole life had disintegrated, so he decided to sue the authorities who had put him in this uh, position. And um, just days before he was supposed to have his day in court in the civil case, he died of a stress-related heart attack at the age of 35. So this is one of the most tragic cases for me that I uh, have ever worked on in my career because of the sad ending. So then... Nikki, these wrongful convictions in this case, as we heard from Steve Ti- or on, on Steve Titus, it was a journalist who dug this up. How are how do people get out of a wrongful conviction? How are these things sort of coming to light in this country? Yeah, it's not easy. An appeal can be achieved on the basis of of three merits: the verdict was unreasonable, there was an error in law, or there was a miscarriage in justice. And it can be really, really difficult to prove that that you were innocent of the crime that you're committed uh, accused of committing. I mean, in the case of Robert Baltovich, he said, "You know, I was damned if I didn't, damned if I didn't, because I was sitting in a prison cell, and if I was ever to get released on parole, they'd want to hear me admit." to the crime that I didn't do. They'd want to hear me say, yes, I I take responsibility for the murder of my girlfriend. But he said, you know, I couldn't do that because I didn't do the crime. So I knew that I was never even going to get released on parole and that I had to try to fight this through an appeal, through any possible way that I could. Now, a name that your listeners might know is James Lockyer. He's uh, probably one of the best defense lawyers in Canada, and he's done a lot of work for helping the wrongfully convicted get out of prison, helping them, uh, you know, review their cases, perhaps finding new evidence or finding holes in what the the initial evidence that was brought against them uh, was. But it can be really, really difficult. And, you know, the success rate not necessarily great. Still lots of people in Canadian prison systems today fighting what they say are wrongful convictions. That was going to be my next question, Nikki. I think there might be a perception out there because some of the names we're mentioning are from cases from the 80s or early 90s. And I think people will think, well, with technology and DNA and all the things we've learned, we've gotten better at this, but are there are there still a growing number, or at least the same number of current cases that we're battling to try to to help uh, people get out of prison who may have been wrongfully convicted today? Yeah, you know it's funny because the numbers on this they're really hard to track because you don't exactly know how many people are in prison for crimes they didn't commit. You know how many people have been sent to prison or have been convicted of crimes, but how many of those people are actually innocent and wrongfully convicted? Well, we just simply don't know, because if we knew, then they wouldn't be there in the first place. The Innocence uh, Innocence Canada Project has released uh, over 20 people now, or hoped, helped over 20 people uh, be released from prison. It's estimated that there's about 70 cases in Canadian history of those who have been wrongfully convicted. We don't know how many are still in the court system that haven't yet been revealed or how many across the country are being fought um, 
at this very moment because the stats on it aren't particularly great. When we look at the United States and draw some comparisons there, we think of our justice systems as being some of the best in the world. And, and so th- this is sure to, to shake some confidence in that. And you, you hear the whole idea of, of taking either a plea agreement because that's going to be the, the lesser of two evils or the example that you just gave us where you're in prison and you, go, and you know the only way you're going to get a shorter sentence or get parole is to show contrition for what you've done. And, and there's a real catch-22 there for those that uh, know that they're innocent. Oh, totally. I mean, Maria Shepard is a great example of that. That's the woman I referenced earlier who, you know, said, yeah, she confessed to to killing her three and a half year old stepdaughter, a crime she didn't do. Because when she was in questioning for nine hours, she's crying. She's exhausted, you know, has to use the bathroom. She's being denied food. She's emotionally, psychologically exhausted. And they tell her, look, if you don't confess to what we know you've done, we're going to take away your kids and your other children. And you're going to be on the front page of the newspaper tomorrow morning labeled as a child killer. Now, on top of that, she's pregnant at this very time as well. So she says to to avoid what she thought was was a worse sentence, which was to have her children taken away and to be branded a child killer in the newspaper. She said, "Okay, I'll I'll confess and then if I confess to this, these people will help me get out of this this awkward situation that I'm in." Now, of course, that's not how it worked at all. She was naive um unfortunately to to think that they would help her because that's not what their intentions were. Their intentions were to get a a guilty confession from her whether or not she actually did the crime and so her off to prison and ultimately that's what ended up happening but she thought if I just say that I did it then you know if, if I plead guilty then they'll help me and that obviously wasn't the case Nikki Reitmeyer joining us live on 680 CJOB thank you so much for joining us Nikki we appreciate it thanks guys have a great Monday the headline at CJOB.com and globalnews.ca Canada's wrongfully convicted why do wrongful convictions happen it's a five part series this week from our friends out at Global News Radio 980 CKNW in Vancouver and you can read more as well we've linked it to our 680 CJOB Instagram It's like a full uh, Oompa Loompa. I know that's not the Oompa Loompas, but you know, like the... It's thrilled. It's impossible not to get a little bit of a bounce when you hear the song. Come yes. on. I haven't heard this in years, but it's making me smile. It's making me happy. Even though the movie used to give me nightmares. Yes, a lot of kids. And then the second one was even worse with those monkeys. Do you remember that? And they were like on wheels. Like they were terrifying and they flew. Of course. The second second one? Yeah. The second Wizard of Oz movie? Like the remake of it? No. I mean, like, there was, a, like, one with monkeys in it. Was that in the first one? And I'm just thinking well, it's a sequel. The first one, yeah. Yeah, were they on bikes? Yeah, I can't, I can't remember now. I remember they, they, were were flying. they were flying monkeys. They were flying monkeys. <laughs> yes. They had wings. But there was bicycles involved somewhere along the line. That, that's ringing a bell for me. Why, I don't know why I think there's a second one that I saw. Maybe it was just well, the, they're well, what about the original. Wiz? They're, like, they're like two. The Wiz. It's like watching two movies in one, really, with The Wizard of Oz, right? So there was the Oz the Great and Powerful that right. later came out. Either yes. way, the monkeys were terrifying. Yeah, they were scary. They gave me nightmares. Oh, the witch Google. gave me nightmares. Well, let's ask our guest if they've got monkeys, monkeys with bicycles, bicycles. 
<laughs> Andre Lewis is here, artistic director of the Royal Winnipeg Ballet, because the Wizard of Oz is on this week. Andre, good morning to you, sir. Good morning. So do you have monkeys that fly or ride bikes or anything like that? Well, the monkeys don't ride bikes, but there is a bike involved, and there are flying monkeys for sure. But it's uh, it's not that scary that uh, you will not want to come. Well, it's a fantastic show. So how do you, how does that work then when you have the if you have an aerial component to what is already uh, a marvelous achievement of athleticism? Uh, how do you work that in? Well, there there are uh, organizations that uh, focus on flying. There's a lot of uh, flying in theater nowadays, in ballet, and in 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 the theater world itself. So uh, this it's an organization called FOI, and uh, they uh, they come in all equipped and they make you fly. It's fantastic. It's, we did it in Peter Pan. We did it in Firebird. <laughs> did you try all, it? And it's with FOI. Did you try it? No, I've never tried it myself. Tempted or just something you're going to stay away from, Andre? Yeah, well, I don't know. I I mean, I think it would be kind of neat, but uh, I was never given the opportunity. In my days, uh, it it was Firebird. It was only uh, Evelyn uh, Evelyn Hart that had to fly as the Firebird. Well, if you uh, decide to uh, try it out, we want to be there with cameras, okay? Fair? For sure, for sure. <laughs> All right, perfect. Hey, uh, Andre, I know that this is the Canadian debut and the Canadian premiere, but you took this show to Colorado already. What was the reaction? Uh, well, we went to Colorado and Kansas City. It was not with our company. It was a, a three-way partnership uh, with Kansas City Ballet and Colorado Ballet, and they did it with their companies in Kansas and Colorado, and the uh, reaction was absolutely astounding i mean it was super well received both by from a critical uh, standpoint and from an audience point standpoint which is the most important of course oh we should just point out loren that someone has texted to say there and i remember this now this is from the mid 1980s 1985 return to oz they say the wheelers monkeys on wheels i was sure of it okay well maybe we can save that for the next time that you can do the rwb wizard of oz part two or something in a few years (laughs) andre Yes. But, but when it comes to taking a like an iconic show like this that so many people have memories of watching growing up, is there a challenge of trying to adapt that to the stage and the ballet? Uh, w- because people have such deep feelings about certain shows. Absolutely. There's challenges in, in condensing a story, which was called The Wonderful Wizard of Oz, and to try to bring the elements that you feel will work well with uh, the uh uh, the scenic uh, part of it. So it's just, it's part of what the choreographer and the creative team has to do. But uh, Septim Weber, who's the choreographer, uh, has, has done a really, really wonderful job to adapt it. So you get the sense of the stories, you get the, the primary characters in there, and we're talking about the, the flying monkeys, uh, we have the, the, the yellow brick road, and all of those elements, and beautiful, beautiful music of Matthew Pierce. Andre, can can doing something like this, where you are you are adapting a longtime favorite, something that's beloved by millions of people, yes, you get the name recognition, but with it comes the pressure of translating that story in a satisfactory fashion for the audience. Yes, 
And and of and of course that's normal. Like uh, when we did Dracula, or when we did Moulin Rouge, or Peter Pan, or any of those work that have brand recognition. You you have to do first and foremost with artistic excellence in mind, with uh, an ability to bring a narrative to the to the uh, to the audience that they recognize, they understand. And and bring this in in in, in a package that uh, that works, and that's what ballad does so beautifully. What about costumes? Like when you think of the cowardly lion, I would think that that's not exactly the the most conducive outfit for a ballet dancer. So how how creative do you have to be to make the costume still work in a recognizable context, but in one where they can still perform at their best? Yes, and and that's for every part. I mean, the uh, the costumes are absolutely stellar, and we were very fortunate in Winnipeg that uh, we 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 actually built all of the costume here for uh, all of the performance. So the costumes that we saw in Kansas City and Colorado were from Winnipeg. So our shop did all of uh, the costumes, and of course, it's adapted for dance. Uh, and and we are careful that, uh, or the designer and the choreographer are are careful that uh, the dancers can dance. So for you, as you get in a week like this, and the first show is Wednesday, what what's your feeling like? Have, are you, have all the eyes been dotted and the T's crossed, and nobody's got you know training left to do? Or is there still like those last minute things that have to be finished up before it's open to the public? There's always last minute things. <laughs> And you know what? There's no such thing as a, a, a not last-minute uh, things to do. I mean, it's just part of the business. You know, I mean, there's always things you want to, you know, hone a, even a bit more and a bit more and a bit more. We we just did Romeo and Juliet, and I mean, we worked on it until the day we opened. Same with Handmaid's Tale. Same with Nutcracker. Same with. Uh, our mixed repertoire, anything we do, I mean, you will use that time as much as you can to make it as perfect as you can. What's that ratio like, Andre, a practice versus performance? Uh, well, the practice, a show like this took probably uh, five weeks, I would say, in total to practice. And uh, we do a, a week of shows. We're taking it on tour next year uh, to the USA and to Ottawa. And um, and because it will have been done, it will it'll be much a shorter period. But the the first the creative period probably in total took uh, almost eight weeks. Andre Lewis is the artistic director and CEO of the Royal Winnipeg Ballet. We're talking about the Wizard of Oz. It's Canadian debut this week, starting Wednesday night at the Centennial Concert Hall. There are shows Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday night, and then Sunday afternoon at 2 o'clock. And you can get more information and tickets at rwb.org. Andre, thank you as always for the visit. We appreciate it, sir. Yeah, it's my pleasure, and it's a fantastic show, and it's it's really a premiere for us, and because it was a premiere between the three companies that performed it, so it's it's a very special moment. It's a wonderful way of finishing the seventy ninth season. All right, Andre, thank you very much for the time. That's really cool that the costumes were that they oh, were yeah. used in those uh, those other Kansas City and Colorado came from Winnipeg. Yeah, yeah, that doesn't surprise me in any way, right? We're talking about one of the world's leading ballet companies. 
and uh, to imagine that this is going to be going on the road as well. I think we we hold up the Winnipeg Jets as this icon and this beacon of, of things that people know Winnipeg for. The Royal Winnipeg Ballet is just like right there uh, in a lot of circles for people. Oh, Canada's Royal Winnipeg Ballet, of course. Duh. Yeah, yeah. And it's I, I was able to take in the, the Handmaid's Tale, and that was a really cool and unique uh, adaptation of that story. I haven't read the book, The Handmaid's Tale, but I watched the television show, at least the first season of it, and uh, that's what the the ballet performance was based on, and it was just incredible. And every time I go to the ballet, you know, you, you don't have to be a ballet expert. I think it's the ballet, like the symphony, people can be intimidated by it because they're not familiar with it, mm-hmm. and they don't want people to think they're morons because they don't know what's going on. Like, I, the first time I went to the ballet, I kept asking the person I was with, what the heck going on? But that's why I think it's a good, if you haven't been before, then something like The Wizard of Oz, or say you had read The Handmaid's Tale, or you're you know familiar the with the TV series, then you know the story. So it's a good place to start because you won't be sitting there being like, is this a witch? Is that a lion? <laughs> like, you'll, you know, what's, you generally know what's going on. Where I remember one of the earlier ballets I had gone to was Anna Karenina. And I was like, or is it Anna Karina? Anyway. By the end, I was like, eh. but I went watched it a second time right. and had gone home and done some research. I wanted to see if I could follow the plot without knowing the story. And in that case, I I just was kind of overwhelmed by all of it. And I was much younger. But I think if, you, if you're thinking, oh, I haven't been to the ballet before, then you start with something like this. You know the story. Yeah. And I can remember the first a similar situation, Loren, the first time I went to see opera. I had no idea what the mm-hmm. story was about. And they have the subtitles to help you to track along. And I enjoyed it immensely without having any advanced knowledge of the story. And the performances were so extraordinary. And so I, I think this is, we commend the WSO and RWB for the work that they do in order to get out in the public, to engage more of the public, those that may not have seen their performances in the past. I think it's just another example of trying to bring in a broader audience. And I commend them uh, wholeheartedly for doing that. Two plus two, if you can get good seats like that are really close, it's one of those things where you you sit there. Like, it's great no matter where you're from. I've sat in the the, the upper balcony for uh, when they did Moulin Rouge like 10 years ago, and that was cool. But then the next time I went, I was in something like the eighth or 10th row. And then when you get to sit really close, that's where you sort of can truly appreciate, like, how are how is it possible that human beings are doing this? Like, I can barely get out of bed without my back cracking, and they're on their tippy toes spinning around like 50 times these that's are, an exaggeration yeah but. but these are some of the best athletes in the world yeah that's how they're so incredible hey thanks for listening to the start podcast we are available on apple podcast google podcast wherever you find your favorite podcasts subscribe now and never miss an episode and if you like what you hear rate the show tell us what you think And hey, even tell a friend about the podcast. Be sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram. Greg is at GMACWPG. That's G-M-A-C-K-W-P-G. I am at Brett McGarry, B-R-E-T-T-M-E-G-A-R-R-Y. And Loren on Twitter is at McNab on Global. And on Instagram, at McNab on CJOB. Talk soon.